hello and welcome to the Sentient Media podcast. This is our first podcast of 2022 and we're sharing this time with a wonderful guest, uh, Cathy Stevens, the founder of Catskill Rescue Sanctuary. Uh, so for our new listeners, uh, this is a podcast where we meet people who are doing things and creating environments that are changing the way we think about and interact with the world around us. And I honestly cannot think of a more wonderful guest to kick off the new year with. Um, Kathy Coate founded uh, Catskill Animal Sanctuary in 2001, um, where she brings together her love of animals and her belief in the transformative power of education. She's also the author of Where the Blind Horse Sings and Animal Camp. Uh, so hi, Kathy. Welcome. And thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Anna. I'm so excited to be here as your first guest in 2022 on this frigid day. Yeah, we were just talking about that. And we've been hearing uh, a lot about what's happening over there right now with the storm that you all are facing. Um, how, how has it been going? Well, you know, this last storm missed us by about a meter, you know, not very much. All around us, people were slammed 20 inches, 24 inches. Parts of central Massachusetts got 30 inches. It really missed us. Uh, our struggle this year has been the bitter, bitter, bitter cold. We've been uh, probably we've had 10, a good 10 nights when it's gotten into the negative numbers. And how did that, we just looked it up. How does it translate? Oh, I said right now it's one Fahrenheit and you checked and it was minus 17. So it's been, it's been minus 20 Celsius, minus 22 Celsius, way in the negative numbers. And that's when you've got to make sure that the animals don't develop frostbite, that they, you know, it's lots and lots of extra care for the animals when it gets that cold, not to mention the poor people who are taking care of these hundreds of animals. Yeah, right. So what, what kind of things do you have to do to protect the animals in that, in, in this kind of coldness? It depends on the species. We, our chicken barn uh, has radiant heat. So we turn it on so that it keeps that barn comfortable through the floors. We use for other buildings, the, the pigs have heat that's on timers. Um, we can turn it on to come on at the coldest part of the night. For the other animals, they are hardier. The sheep are comfortable in this weather. And the cows and horses, we just offer lots and lots of deep bedding. If they're old, we blanket them. If they live outside with a, with a barn that they can access whenever they want, come and go as they choose, we blanket them. Um, so it, it really is different depending on the species. So obviously we've just spoken a little bit about, you have a, a variety of animals that are, you're looking after right now. And I understand you started the sanctuary in 2001. Um, could you tell us, uh, for people who don't know, who aren't familiar with you and, and what you've been doing, tell us just the, the top level, what it is that you're doing and, and why you started the sanctuary? Sure. So Catskill Animal Sanctuary, which is in New York, about two hours north of Manhattan, um, is a farm sanctuary for 10 species of farmed animals from chickens to, to cows. And we also have horses which are farmed in a way that people don't typically think about it. Um, but I, I had been as a, as a young girl, I grew up in the, in the South in Virginia and my dad raised horses. Well, he was a thoroughbred 
breeder and trainer, but we always had lots of animals. I had goats that I used to sneak into the house. And so I've had animals are in my DNA. I've had this deep love for animals my entire life and the understanding that they are so much more than most humans realize. We know, we know how like us our dogs are and our cats are with their rich emotional lives and their individuality. We don't tend to want to know that about the animals we eat, but I've always known that because I lived with them. So I moved to Boston, became a high school English teacher, and a decade into that work was invited to become the principal of a, a, a new high school, but decided at that point to pivot and to combine my love for teaching and learning with my love for animals. And that was in 2000 and Catskill Animal Sanctuary was established in 2001 and 20 years later. Good Lord, good Lord, here we are. That's so amazing. It is incredible to think that it has been 20, this is your 21st year, right? I mean, yes. that's a, yes. a massive milestone. Um, so I'm curious at what point did you start to uh, change your attitude towards animals as food? Like, were you raised eating animal meat? Or oh, good lord, yes. We had we had cows, and we named them. And my dad would joke that we were eating George, or we were eating Ed, or we were eating Peter, or whatever. Um, and like most of us, most of humans, you know, nobody's intending to harm animals when we eat. We just live in the culture we live in, and so. I didn't, interestingly, I didn't really think too much about it. And then in my 20s, I became vegetarian. And like so many people, went through a process over many years of reducing A and then reducing B and then reducing C. But it wasn't until right before I started Catskill Animal Sanctuary and saw uh, some documentaries that highlighted the horrors of the dairy industry that I just said, okay, that's it. I'm done. I mean, thinking about dairy, uh, you know, about Veganuary and then the dairy industry's response, February Dairy. We are speaking today on the 1st of February Dairy. Um, I mean, at Sentient Media, we are going to be covering the dairy industry, the reality of, of what that looks like, um, as an industry, but I'm curious, do you have any um, dairy cows on your, in your rescue farm right now? And could you tell us a little bit about them and their, their characters? We, we do. We mostly actually have males from the dairy industry who were lucky enough to um, escape that fate. In one, in one case, we have a couple little steers, not little now, named Calvin and Bernard, who were ferried off, off of a dairy industry and would, off a dairy farm after they had been separated from their moms and would not have made it. They were quite sick when they came here. But in general, we've had many, many, many dairy cows over the years. Um, we now have a probably close to 3000 pounds. I'm not sure how many stones that is, but a lot. <laughs> oh, here goes the calculator. I'm getting, I'm getting my trusty friend out. So yeah. how many, how many pounds did you say? 3000. 
Okay, 3,000 pounds. So we do stone. Um, yes, in... I used to live there. Right. Oh, really? Yeah. Ah, Cup, where, for a couple of years. You, where were you in the UK? Um, I was in Bath. 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 Lovely. Bath. With the uh, beautiful spas and the, the Roman bath. Things, yeah. Right? yeah. Breathtaking place. Yeah. Gorgeous. Um, so, okay. So 3,000 pounds is 1,360 kilograms. And in stone, it is... Wow, two hundred and fourteen stone. That's yeah, massive. That's big. Yeah. He's he's. Uh, is this one one cow? One cow. He's Whoa. Um, six feet four inches tall at the shoulder. Um, wow. And he was bought at auction by a by. A, he was a dairy cow, so he would have been veal, but bought instead bought at auction by a petting zoo and came here shortly thereafter when a woman bought him to save his life. Uh, and cows in general, dairy or beef, cows in general are little understood animals. People think they are stupid. And lots of people think, will say, you know, well, they just kind of stand there all day. Well, they, I, the expression still waters run deep describes cows. They are highly emotional animals who love their friends and bond easily and grieve in a way that will break your heart when they lose their beloveds, whether it's family or friends. We actually thought we had a sick cow. This my my bovine best friend, the giant one I was telling you about named Tucker, was in such grief when he lost his friend, Caleb, and this was after a succession of losses because he had a lot of friends who were significantly older than he was, uh, that we thought he had cancer because he separated himself from the herd, which is what cows do when they're sick, um, wasn't eating, wouldn't accept affection. And he was just grieving. He came out of it, but it took months. So that's who cows are just again, breathtakingly loving animals who will just lick your face until your face bleeds because their tongue is a giant cat tongue. Uh, and to think what they endure because so that we can have a product that really isn't that we weren't designed to consume in the first place is, is pretty, pretty tough. Yeah. I mean, that's, it, it is interesting talking about grief. Um, Unfortunately, I haven't had much experience uh, on rescue, uh, you know, visiting rescue sanctuaries. We don't have many in the UK. Um, I did visit one in California uh, at the very start, just before COVID in 2020. And Which one? It's uh, the Hens of the Hills. So it's a small, nice. like a, mi a micro sanctuary. We visited yes. Sleep Farm as well, which is a, a much uh, bigger farm set up in California. Um, but at the Hens of the Hills, this little micro sanctuary, she's uh, just rescued, you know, hens and um, that have been, you know, backyard breeders or broiler or, you know, yeah. all, all of the, the usual suspects. And um, the way that she, the woman who looks after them, um, Deirdre was talking about them experiencing grief. And when one of the hens 
um, passed away and she brought the the body of the hen in for everybody to see and they yeah. you know the way that they acknowledged and, and understood and interacted um with this with this you know with their friend's body um is so human-like and it, it's it's really it's quite troubling to think about when you think about farmed animals when their lives are surrounded by this trauma and this death constantly and then they have to watch each other you know go go to the slaughter um so yeah it is it, it's a it's a it's something that I think we don't we don't talk about very often how it how much it hurts these you know farmed animals in their in their in the factory farm and, and slaughterhouse conditions to and uh we have a uh a, a phrase that we sort of become our tagline which is that in the ways that truly matter we're all the same and it's just I know this for a fact it's not my opinion I've lived among these animals for 20 years and there's not an emotion that you can name that we experience that they don't. They're just, they don't, because they don't have the capacity to speak language that we understand, you know, certainly they have language, then it's easier for us to, to look at them. And it's also convenient because if we faced who they were, then we'd probably be a vegan world. Mm, if we exactly. truly let in the fact that they are every bit as loving, as emotional, as individual, as quirky, and, and the fact that they want their lives as much as we want ours, if all of that, you know, every bit as much as our children, then be a different world. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're saying, you know, you have animals in your DNA, you've grown up, you know, experiencing and, and being a part of, of different animals, non-human animals lives uh, since you were a child. Um, but over the last 20 years, getting into your 21 years of running um, Cat School, like what have you have you noticed any changes as you're actively educating and bringing in people to experience? Um, oh, ma- massive. Yeah, it's what, a different. What's your observation? It's a different world. Well. 20 years ago, people didn't know how to pronounce vegan and they didn't know what it meant. And they would, um, believe that it was about, it was extreme and about extreme deprivation. And that, that it was almost as if vegans 20, two years ago were perceived as sort of a lunatic fringe, not quite that, but almost. And when you went into the store, you could find soy milk, but that's about it. So now not only has the market changed, as you well know, um, you can find cheese or milk that's every bit as tasty as anything from a cow and certainly healthier also those, all those new meats, but we don't, we don't get the visitor. We have thousands of visitors every year from all over the country and, and some internationally as well, although that's COVID has inhibited that, but uh, we no longer get the visitor who says that's a nice side of bacon right? When they look at the pigs, we, and we used to get one of those every, every day, every day, just the snide visitor who was uncomfortable and had to make the dumb joke. And now at least even when visitors are not vegan or even vegetarian, they 
there's a, a different respect among, certainly among the progressive community who might identify as animal lovers, because that's who comes here. We attract animal lovers. There is a respect and a recognition that this is an aspirational lifestyle. So it, it's, it's dramatically different than it was 22, 22 21 years ago, um, whether or not we can make a shift rapidly enough that because you know in response to climate change is that's a tall order but there's certainly a lot to be encouraged about hmm. and i think that that's it's important to note that it goes both ways as well i think you know the the protests and the marches that used to be you know dominated by vegans that are you know saying shame on you you know to meat eaters and even vegetarians it's i think that the that the the conversation has shifted between these these groups, uh, that it's more about supporting each other and, and having an open dialogue and trying to be free from judging people and letting everybody kind of go on their journey. And for a lot of people, going to a, a you know rescue sanctuary just will change everything. Will change their lives. And I'm sure you've had visitors like that as well. Thousands, and so has every sanctuary that's been good sanctuary, you know, that has been around for any length of time. My favorite story is of a man in his 30s. I had walked down the hill to the barn, to the main barn, which is where our tours gather. And we locked eyes. He saw me and he, and he ran up to me and he burst into tears and he grabbed my forearms. This was before COVID. <laughs> When you couldn't, when you we could still touch people, grab my forearms and he tears streaming down his face. And he just said, I get it now. He had just finished a tour. I get it now. Tell me what to do. People don't expect for cows to lick their faces, for chickens to fall asleep in their laps, for pigs to come running when you call their names, for turkeys to lean over their shoulders to hug them. They don't expect that. And they become unglued in those moments because those moments put the lie to all that cultural conditioning that we all grow up with. Powerful, powerful need in this world for good, responsibly run sanctuaries. Absolutely. That's such a beautiful story. And yeah, I, I wonder, you know, you're talking about the cow who came from the petting zoo. Tucker. Petting, Tucker, yes. Um, could you, for, for, you know, a lot of people don't know the difference between, you know, a petting zoo and a farmed animal rescue sanctuary. Like, what is the difference in terms of how? you know, you interact with the animals and, and the lives that the animals are allowed to lead? Well, at the core of it, one is a profit enterprise and one isn't. So one exists, sanctuaries exist to serve animals. Animals are our raison d'etre, as opposed to the for-profit business whose job it is to make money from the animals. So that's that's the foundational difference. And from that, you can explain everything. But at, typically at petting zoos in the Northeast, where you can't there, you can't be open in the winter, you're just not going to have the traffic. 
um, they will auction off. A lot of petting zoos have babies, lots and lots of babies, and they have them in very confined spaces so that they can't really move far away from people so that you can go in, pay a fee. Your kids have the experience of interacting with a confined animal. But what very few people understand is that the end of that visiting season, that tourist season, those animals are auctioned off. And auction is literally a euphemism for slaughter because there's just no demand for pet cows or pet pigs or pet chickens or pet fill in the blank. So uh, they just cycle through and and the cute little baby that your daughter fell in love with in May is going to be dead in November. And that's one of the many things that's problematic with with petting zoos. Yeah, yeah, it's a completely different experience. When, I think when you allow when you're in a space in, in you know, in a rescue farmed animal rescue sanctuary and you're there and some animals might come up to you. Some just want to be left alone and you can, you know, let them be. And it's such a different, uh, it's a very re rewarding and wonderful experience. And I feel the the atmosphere, I mean, like I say, I have very limited experience, but the atmosphere that I've noticed in my experience has just been one of like calm and, and, and peace. Um, amongst obviously a lot of busy busyness. <laughs> people, busy people cry here a lot. And their comment is that they feel so much love and peace. And one, if you ever get back over here and have the opportunity to visit, or if anybody else who's listening is planning on a trip to New York, one of the things that distinguishes Catskill Animal Sanctuary is that we have a big group of animals that we call the underfoot family and they are free roaming animals and so they will you'll literally pull in the driveway and have a goat try to climb in your car or a sheep run up and bury his head in your thighs because he wants to say hello or you'll see russell the potbelly pig walking by on his way to the compost pile so that's when you really really see their individuality, because you'll see some of the sheep hang back and you'll see some just run up and just look up and say, I love you. I don't know your name, but I love you because they are so deeply soulful animals. And uh, yeah, I can't remember what I was, that's even in response to, but. <laughs> no, that, that's awesome. It's such a wonderful picture. Just that feeling of the atmosphere. Um, that's what you were describing. And yeah, yeah I mean, that's just, it, it just, it's bliss. Um, and one of your speciality, well, I, I'm calling it one of your speciality rescues is, um, is blind horses. Um, mm. And you wrote uh, about Buddy, right, in your, in your book, um, Where the Blind Horse Sings. And I was wondering for people who haven't read the book or who aren't familiar with this story, like, it just seems like such a a huge uh, thing, a huge undertaking to work with a blind horse, you know, an, an animal who's naturally kind of scared of what's going on around, like, you mm. know, obviously their, their, you know, their, their, their prey drive, etc. So, um, yeah, I mean, how did your relationship with blind horses even begin? Well, it began with him, with Buddy, this woman from a, a horse rescue that still exists today, it's a place called Equine Advocates, reached out to us when we had just been uh, open for a few months 
and said, it's a blind horse. His family loves him, but they cannot cope with his blindness. And he's in a very irregular paddock, barbed wire paddock. So he's cutting himself. And she said, would you take him? Well, I didn't know blind horses, but I sure did know horses. And I figured he would show us what he needed. And I'll never forget the day he came to us. He, I got on the trailer and he was shaking so violently, like so violently, He's so terrified. And it took to get him maybe 40 feet to the barn. It took probably an hour when he was just taking a tiny, tiny step at a time. And I had a bowl of grain that I had in front of his nose and he'd reach for it and take a little bite. And then I'd back up an inch. Well, within a week. So I started taking him for walks, long walks, long walks, long walks every day, walking through the woods just to build his confidence. And within a, a week, probably just a few days, he wanted to run. Well, now I'm sorry. I'm not a world-class marathoner. I could, I could, I could jog along with him, but I couldn't sprint. I can't, I'm not a horse. So even though in general, we are not fans of horseback riding, which is a whole other topic. Certainly, certainly not for competition for, for right. I had to ride him because he wanted to gallop. And the, one of the most memorable moments of my life was when uh, the first day, uh, you know, the, when I first started riding him, I just take him in circles in a field a little bit, uh, but he just, he wanted to gallop, like everything in him wanted to gallop. And so the first day I took him out to this massive field he started to trot and then he started to canter and then he started to gallop and he was running as fast as he could because he trusted me to keep him safe. <laughs> and uh, when he was ready to stop, when he was winded, he stopped running and then he, he stopped and he blew out his breath like... And then he went like this huge whinny. And I felt like he was saying, I'm free. And uh, it was a moment I will never forget. And he was with us for seven years. And that relationship taught me so much about paying attention to each individual and how not treating them all the same. And in the same way that as a class, in a classroom, as a teacher, you have to respond sort of individually to your students. So um, it, that relationship was one of many that changed my life. And since then we've welcomed nine other blind horses, including one we just rescued, who happens to be our fourth blind horse named Buddy. 
go figure. <laughs> and that and the and the there's a there's a beautiful video of that that people can find um, on our YouTube channel um, of of working with him. And I mean, yeah, it, yeah, it's such a beautiful story. And horses, like I've always been obsessed with horses since being a child. So like you know, this story just speaks so much to me. That time where you have to the horse genuinely wants to be ridden and you have to listen to them and 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 take them and and, and help them um and they're helping you and you know, he just, didn't i wouldn't say he wanted to be ridden he wanted right. to run he wanted yeah. to gallop and that was and the only way for me to allow him to do that because blind horses don't run they don't they don't run for obvious reasons mm -hmm. if they are startled they'll spin in circles mm -hmm. but they won't which is true, actually, because we've had so many blind animals, ducks, chickens, uh, cows. That's that's a stress response, right? Because when they have something frightens them and they have this energy that needs to be released and they can't just sprint because they don't know where the fence or the mm -hmm. next tree is. That's the way to keeping them safe and releasing that stress. Mm, I mean, it's yeah, I mean, it's just incredible. The patience like I did watch uh, the YouTube videos with the the latest buddy um the white horse right um, yeah. yeah and uh, it's just incredible like you're there you know uh, saying stop and then patting the ground and then he knows you know oh this is water or this is a ramp or or whatever it's 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 absolutely incredible to see like do, do the horses pick it up like you said within a week with buddy in the book but you know, like do they pick things up really quickly well all animals have the capacity to learn. I've been astonished at how quickly chickens learn their names, for example. Um, but it's very individual. Some have the capacity for language, of a stronger capacity for language and learn more quickly. But all of our blind horses learned stop, water, up, down, the basic things that they need to keep themselves safe. Um, and, and then we do other things like put them in a very symmetrical field so that they can memorize it quickly. But it's just, it's a privilege to work with them and give them the kind of confidence that they've never had because of the circumstances that they've come from. And they live very, very, very happily. This newest buddy is a piece of work. He's a handful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, look, he looks like a very, very good boy in the, in the videos. Um, but do, do, the, do the blind horses, like, do you have horses with sight there as well? Like, do they kind of yes. learn from each other as well? we've done it differently depending on who we've got here and right now we have one two three four herds of horses into which it would be tough to introduce a blind horse so we now we've had blind horses live with an a guide horse um we also had a guide horse who we had a bell on him who was not interested in that role. And you'd put the bell on him, he'd instantly stop moving so that his blind pasture mate would have no clue where he was. So that didn't work. Uh, but this buddy, buddy, buddy four, who is 31 and 
which means he'll be 32 very quite soon because generally horses are born in the spring. Uh, lives with Buddy Three, who we can't believe is still not going strong, but he's, he's going to be 36 years old this year. So they That's live, incredible. they live in stalls next to each other with a big window cut out so that they can hang out together at night. And I'll often go down there at night and one of them is nuzzling the other one or, uh, and then they're turned out during the day together. That's just incredible. Like it, it's just such a wonderful, uh, it really touched me watching those videos and hearing you talk about it. I just, it's so magical. Um, but you're talking about, you know, the guide horse, you didn't want to be a guide horse, you know, with the bell, like, it, it, and I, I, one of the things I have uh, noticed at least online, you know, in a lot of farmed animal sanctuaries where animals of different species are allowed to be together and roam together, they often form like little cross species relationships, like a, a sheep who, you know, just stays with the cows and doesn't look at other sheep. <laughs> um, do you, do you have any kind of cross species friendships? That you oh yeah. Have? We've had an amazing friendship between a, Oh, so many um, between, but one of the most powerful ones was between a, a pig, Jasmine, and uh, a rooster named Travis. And we just lost Travis after a long, 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 long life, but they loved each other. And go figure, what it, go figure, what was it about? Um, why does a dog choose a particular family member as his very, very, very best friend, even though he loves everybody in the family? I, I don't know. But yes, we've had many of those, a cow and a turkey, a pig and a chicken, um, sheep and goats, just, yeah. And when you, when you have so many who are allowed to roam free, then they get to make so many choices about how they spend their day. And it's wonderful to watch what those choices are, even though in the case of goats, those choices are always to get in trouble. <laughs> um, so obviously we have like this beautiful story, lots and lots of beautiful uh, stories about individuals living their lives uh, and getting to make these choices uh, at Catskill. Um, but what like in terms of thinking about a future a different future and a different um approach to food what do you think about the role like what should the role of farmed animal sanctuaries be if we moved into a plant-based uh food system well i think we are moving into a plant-based food system but i think we're moving gradually and um if you know this is so hypothetical and so massive, but, you know, and, and I never know how to answer this question because it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's going to happen gradually. And of course, all these animals exist because we, we breed them, we inseminate them, we capture and confine them. And then we, we produce billions more of them year upon year to feed us. So, so so much of that, you know, if you take away the demand, then you can see a, see that those animals, you can almost see your way to the extinction of certain species over time. But there would be a vital role for sanctuaries because there'd be a, an urgent need for the placement of the ones who weren't going to be consumed. And 
even though sanctuaries are popping up every day, I feel like, I believe there should be a sanctuary in every region of the world so that everybody can doesn't can go no more than an hour to get to one to have those transformational experiences because they do change people profoundly and permanently um so my hope and and i've certainly been involved in supporting a lot of new sanctuaries in whatever way we can with guidance um, is that the sanctuary movement will continue to flourish and that we'll see more good sanctuaries supported by the organizations who, um, you know, make us, make us mind our P's and Q's that we're doing it properly. Um, but I certainly hope that as we move more plant-based, you'll see a, a rapid increase in the number of sanctuaries for these, for these animals. Yeah, I mean, that would be incredible. And it would also be incredible if we took, you know, the zoo, you know, the essentially mandatory zoo visit off the curriculums and changed it to you have to go visit a, a, a farmed animal rescue sanctuary instead and interact and look at the land and look at the earth and look at the environment around us and how these animals live instead of uh, looking at lions and tigers in cages. Yeah, I, I totally agree. We had a visitor who, um, this was so sad to me. She came from the city and she left with a branch. A branch had fallen off a tree and she got back on the bus with the branch because she wanted something that represented nature in her house. I mean, <sighs> yeah, that's like where I am right now it there is so much brick and tarmac and there's tiny little bits of, of grass and there's one tiny bit of grass at the end of all of these rows of houses and they're about to knock it down and build more houses on this little this one little bit of grass that we have and it, it it's it's terrifying and I and I definitely feel you know what this woman felt and in parts of London and places there are kids that literally never get to see anything apart from concrete and high rises yeah um, and the earth is not getting bigger people mm -hmm. the earth is, doesn't have the capacity to grow bigger to accommodate more of us exactly exactly or accommodate all of the animals that we need to grow yep. to feed us yep. <laughs> and all of the feed yep. for the animals it's uh it, it's madness um i was wondering well i have a couple more questions for you if we have time but you have a really um, a wonderfully realistic, but also hopeful take on like behavioral change. And I've heard you talk about, you know, yes, we are seeing an increase in people moving plant-based. We are seeing an increase in people adopting a vegan lifestyle, but we are also seeing an increase in meat consumption and dairy consumption and production when we look at the global picture. Yeah, um, yep. yeah I wonder if you want to tell us a little bit about your take on on the the best steps towards creating a, a bigger scale uh, behavioral change. I think whole scale change as as the window as we see climate get worse year after year after year in measurable ways, right? Whether it's fires or or crazy winter weather or floods or drought or you know fill in the blank then more and more of us are waking up and i all i think 
Anna, is that it is incumbent upon if we each of us has the gift of being uh, of a human body. We were lucky to have been born human. And if we are further lucky to be able-bodied and in most parts of the world, white and, in, and, and lucky enough to be educated and on and on and on to have to have come from a family that loved us. If, and I would wager that a lot of your listeners fall into some of those categories, then we are among the luckiest alive and it is incumbent upon each of us at this critical time in the history of the earth to say there will not be a planet, a, a livable planet for living beings in 50 years, unless we radically change our behavior. And the, and the thing that must change is our consumption of animal products for reasons that I'm sure your audience is aware. And so then to reflect back on oneself and say, what can I do? Because this movement, need, we're running out of time, and this movement needs the best of any of all of us. And there is something that everyone can offer, whether it's on a volunteer basis. There's no, look at your skills, and you can find a niche that will put those skills to work. And so, am I excited about innovation in the plant-based space? Yes. Am I excited about the big funding that is coming into the plant-based space? Yes. Am I excited about this change I'm seeing in the grocery stores? Even in institutions, I'm seeing, you know, the big organizations like in the United States, Humane Society for the United States, they are in the institutions working with the chefs to make our hospitals, our prisons, our schools more vegan friendly. There are wonderful initiatives like Veganuary. So, and I had um, Matthew, he was wonderful, had him on my podcast recently. Um, so there are wonderful initiatives at the institutional level, but that does not let the individual off the hook. So that's my answer to your question. <laughs> I mean, that's a really great answer. And I completely agree with you. It's, it's the same as this idea of like, we need to create change, you know, for the animals who are currently in factory farms to help them, you know, have a little bit more of a, of a pleasant existence while they're in there. But we also need to incite this institutional change where we, we shift away from that as a way of looking at food. That's um, right. And it's, and the problem, the challenge is so massive that the idea that there is a single solution is ridiculous and that those incremental changes don't matter to those particular item animals while the rest of us are working toward a different world. Of course they matter. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, like our role at Sentient Media is to, you know, shed a light on, shine a light on, on what people are doing like you and what people are doing in the meat and dairy industry behind closed doors. Um, and then obviously people like you need to be there to, to rescue these animals and, and give them this life and this wonderful experience. Um, but on like to, to, to close things off, I'm wondering about you and your you know you do so much and it takes a lot out of you know anybody who is around you know this many animals who require you know obviously a lot of attention like physical you know um raising money like 
making being present showing up every day and uh being there for the human animals and the non-human animals like do you like do you un like what do you do to unwind and to reset or, or do you is it does being with the animals kind of energize you being with the animals energizes me um that is not the bulk of my work right the bulk of my work is to set the vision to write to speak to keep the money coming in we've got an extraordinary team of people. I, you know, I pitch in when we're shorthanded, I pitch in, I go down and see my four-legged children and love all over them, but the heavy lifting, the, the animal care team does it. And then behind the scenes, you know, we've got all the others who keep the whole piece moving, the communications people and the development people and the wonderful programs people. Um, but, uh, you know, I come from a hard working dad and hard work is also in my DNA. But yes, I do unwind and I do recharge and, and, you know, nature is my church. So I'm outside absolutely as much, much as possible, long hikes, long walks with the dogs, long bike rides. Um, I read, I write. Uh, I love to cook. My partner, David, and I love to cook and entertain, which is more challenging with COVID, but I have a, I have a great life, I have to say. Sounds amazing. And I cannot wait to come and visit you. I will be trying to get into the States this year at some point. Really? Um, yes. And when I do, uh, when, not if, uh, I shall come to you and uh, experience all of these wonderful animals oh please do it would be my absolute joy to introduce them and i hope that everybody who's already close to you uh geographically can pop up and, and see you and, and visit the animals um, yeah we open in april on weekends and can't wait and we're actually excited to um, offer later in the year our the head of our programs team is bilingual and we're working toward offering Spanish speaking tours as well so it's going to be a, it's going to be a great year here that's so wonderful to hear uh, it's so inspiring and, and you know touching to listen to you like a lot of uh, well myself and my team and a lot of people I know who advocate for animals don't get the time to spend with them <laughs> you know mm. um, you're doing a lot of online kind of you know um type, type of activism and um it, it's wonderful to speak to somebody like you and hear your stories and you know this is why we're all doing what we're doing um to build these better lives for these wonderful well and you you need to recharge by making sure you sit down in the dirt with these wonderful friends I can't think of anything right. better. <laughs> I, uh, we will yeah. see you in 2022, Anna.